So this morning we come to the end of our account of creation and the fall. From nothing, what we read was formless and void and dark. We saw the account of God giving form, creating the matter of the universe, filling that void, bringing the world as we know it into being, and lighting the darkness, creating light and also even physical sources for that light. We've seen the creation of all the creatures and that being crowned with the creation of mankind, Adam, and the first man, Adam. This man was created and commanded, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God then makes man a helper, one that Adam calls woman, for she was taken out of man. And God said to this newly formed couple, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In those first two chapters, we have these themes of God's mighty power, his creative majesty, and his incredible and lavish and abundant provision for his people. God had provided all things, everything that Adam and Eve needed, everything that needed to exist on this earth. But then in chapter 3, the story takes a turn. The serpent said to the woman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and that they knew that they were naked. Sin enters the world. God's commandment has been broken. And now according to God's commandment, man must die, but God does not leave us there. The Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I ate. To the woman, what is it that you have done? I ate. God calls his people to confession. He initiates reconciliation with his people. He calls man back to himself, out of hiding, out of their shame. And then he also pronounces his judgment upon them. To the serpent, cursed are you. On your belly you shall go. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The serpent himself is cursed. Adam and Eve's primary roles, their greatest joys, they too are cursed. But a promise remains. Offspring, a crushed head and a bruised heel. Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
still God is caring for Adam and his wife, now called Eve. He has called them back to himself by calling them to confession. Now he has demonstrated that blood would be spilled on their behalf to mitigate the effects of their sin. Their newfound nakedness now covered by the skins of animals. And the gospel continues to weave its story. And it is at this moment that we step in this morning. Adam and Eve have been clothed by God, and then God does the most wonderful and terrible and loving thing that he could possibly do for his people. When I say terrible, I do not mean to say that God does wrong or what he does is unwarranted. What I'm saying is that this is the moment towards which the entire fall has built, and this is the consequences that is necessary for sin. God does what must be done, and he does it for his glory and for the good of his creation. So with that being said, I would ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 22 to 24. If you are looking in the Pew Bibles, I believe it is on page 3, might be page 4. We're in danger of me actually having to look up the page number here, but um, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. And it is with these three short and incredibly significant verses we are focused today. A few weeks ago, I quoted Martin Luther, who called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Adam's church altar and pulpit, because here he was to yield to God the obedience he owed, give recognition to the word and will of God, give thanks to God, and call upon God for aid against temptation. Maybe to expand upon Luther's concept, the whole of the Garden of Eden was to be Adam's temple, his place of worship. It was here that Adam was to live and to work and to declare the glory of God by working to keep and care for the garden, by being fruitful and multiplying and obeying the commands given to him by God, bearing forth God's image into creation. The garden was to be a place of worship. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we can read that the Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from the way it's phrased here, you wonder 
if maybe these two trees had grown up next to each other, one granting life and life internal, and the other forbidden on the pain of death, a choice to worship God or to worship self. You may have noticed as I was reading, but this first verse in our passage is a lingering, broken sentence spoken by the Lord himself. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Most of our translations put some kind of hyphen or ellipses or something in there because this sentence doesn't finish. It is this prospect of a thing that is too horrible to even imagine. Adam and Eve, he might stretch out his hand and take and eat and live forever. Interestingly, our passage here at the very beginning shows that the serpent who deceived Eve was again not totally lying. Again, proving the deadly efficiency of this cocktail of half-truths. He said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's exactly what happened, isn't it? They had become like God. They did know good and evil. But they had not become omnipotent. They had not become omnipresent. They had not become all-knowing. They had in no way attained to the level of deity that they were being tempted to envision when the serpent says, you will become like God. They're, oh, we could, become, we could become like Him. They became like Him in that they knew good and evil. And from their reaction, the very moment they ate of the fruit, when they knew good and evil, they immediately knew on which side of the fence they had fallen. They knew good and evil, and they had become evil. They had become wicked in a world created by a good and holy and just God. How quickly that whispered promise, this half-truth, a shortcut to divine wisdom, became a dead end, leading to death. Throughout history, some of the cruelest myths of torture, usually by deities against fellow deities or half-deities or mortals, are these myths of eternal punishment and torture. The Greco-Roman pantheon was really good at these horrible myths. You had Prometheus who was condemned to eternally have his liver eaten by an eagle and it would regrow and it would be eaten again. You had Sisyphus who was condemned to eternally push this boulder up a mountain and just as he almost got there it would roll back down and he would start over again. And our, meaning mankind's eternity 
could have been very much like one of these eternal myths of torture. I don't know about you, but I've never been overly enticed with kind of the worldly vision of eternal life. The myths and stories from all ages have spoken of men or women who have pursued eternal life, whether it be the fountain of youth or ambrosia, the food of gods who gives eternal life. There's all manner of these kinds of myths. But eternal life, at least insofar as the world envisions it, sounds like something that I, in my earthly state, would rather avoid. When I look at my own life, my own soul, my own state, I see an eternity of failures in the face of temptation. I see an eternity to come to grips with my own feebleness of my human spirit. Imagine spending an eternity, you know yourself better than anyone else, and you know your own faults, your own flaws, your own wickedness, the thing that you do battle against day in and day out and day in and day out, and you just can't seem to kick. Imagine doing that for the rest of eternity. Adam and Eve faced an eternity doomed to wander the Garden of Eden, surrounded by all of God's provision, but always plagued by their shame always seeing themselves as the sinners that they were, painfully aware of their cursed condition, never granted rest from the labors and toils that attend life on this earth as an effect of the curse in the fall. So as has been the case for all of the consequences for Adam and Eve, there is a double meaning to these punishments that mankind would bear. On one hand, they are being expelled from the garden, and this was an incredible mercy of God, that they would not take of the fruit and eat and live forever with the knowledge that they have just doomed mankind, doomed themselves, and they would be doomed to spend eternity with themselves and with that knowledge and with, with the sin and temptation that accompanies it. God was saving them from an eternity where they had to consider the gravity of what they'd done. But on the other hand, this passage is the outworking of what God had already declared. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. To sin against God is to be condemned to death. Such was the case for Adam and Eve, and such is the case today. And the only mitigating factor, the only thing that determines whether or not you have been condemned to death is to look in the face of God, to look at his commandments, have I broken these? Adam and Eve had one commandment to follow. They broke it. They must die. We today have commands to follow. A law given to us by God in His Word, have we broken it? If we have, then we are condemned to die. As we've been saying all along in Genesis 1-11, to we have these embryonic forms of just about every theological truth, and 
one of the big pieces that comes in verses 21 to 24 is we have this foreshadowing of the tabernacle or the temple, the place of worship when God would call his people Israel out of the rest of the world, when he would choose for himself a people. And the tabernacle followed by the temple would be their place of worship. Sound familiar? Adam had a place of worship. It would be the place in which God would come to dwell with man. God would walk with Adam in the garden. Eden and the tabernacle and then the temple fit well with one another. In Leviticus 16, God gives instructions to Moses to pass along to Aaron, the high priest. These instructions immediately follow the death of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. These sons had offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. As such, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And immediately following this, God gives these commands to Moses to pass to Aaron. Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall present a bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house and he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals from the fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. To come before the Lord in worship. To come before the Lord at all, even in worship, without his blessing, or in a manner that he has not commanded, as Aaron's sons had, is to claim a familiarity with God that denies who he is, his majesty and his power. That denies who he is and belittles his greatness, one would not go before a king unsummoned or unprepared, and neither should one come before God lightly or unbidden or unprepared. Back to Adam and Eve. To allow them to remain in the garden is to allow the unclean to remain in the temple. Such unrighteousness must be removed both for the glory of God and for the sake of the unrighteous. It was no longer safe for Adam and Eve to be in God's presence. Adam and Eve had to go. They were mercifully prevented by God from living eternally in their sinful state. And they were sent from the garden, a temple that was no longer safe for them. And yet they were also sentenced to death. Our passage says they were driven from the garden. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This sending out of Adam 
is not a picture of a joyful commission. He's not saying, all right, go and work. This is not corresponding to the great commission of believers. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He's not being sent forth with this joyful sense of, okay, now go and do what you've been commanded to do. To be sent out is the sending away of Ishmael. It is the sending away of the scapegoat on whom the sins of Israel had been placed. The driving out is the driving out of Cain after he had killed his brother. It is Sarah's demand that Abraham drive out Hagar, her handmaiden. Adam and Eve had been firmly disciplined. They had been forcibly evicted. And yet, while Adam was no longer fit to serve before God in his priestly role in his old temple, the garden, he was not left stranded. Before God sends them out, he clothes them. He prepares them. And he was not stripped of meaning or purpose. His responsibility remained to be fruitful and multiply and bear forth God's image in all creation. He was still to take dominion over the earth and to subdue it. But according to the curse, the earth would no longer go quietly. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Being sent from the garden was a punishment. But he was also sent and given a purpose. God still, even in his punishments, is still caring for and providing for and paying attention to and protecting his people. His creation mandate was upheld. God had provided for him and the ground would still yield its fruit, though unwillingly. Just as God has done and will continue to do, God appointed Adam for a purpose and he will accomplish that purpose through him. God has not, in driving Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin, he has not cast them aside. They may have been cast out, but they have not been cast aside. They still retain their purpose. God would still work in them. After being driven from the garden, God places the cherubim to the east of the garden, apparently at the entrance to the garden, to guard against any who would attempt to return. The word used for the cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life is the exact same word if you were to look back at Adam's commission by God in 2.15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. The cherubim is guarding the way to the tree of life. He is guarding, watching over. It is the same word Adam was to watch over the garden. Now instead of Adam watching over the garden as God's vice regent, the cherubim now watch over the way to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that imagery of the cherubim is also 
taken up in the temple. The cherubim were all over in the temple, most notably over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, the very seat of God's presence with his people. And where the cherubim was placed? At the east of the garden. Any idea which direction the tabernacle always faced? Which direction every Jewish temple faced? It faced to the east. It was in memory of what had happened in the garden and to be sent east was to be sent out of the presence of God. It was to be sent away from God. Everything in this last portion of Genesis chapter 3 is pointing towards this banishment of Adam and Eve, their expulsion from the place where they knew God's presence more intimately than any human being ever has and ever would have until the coming of Christ. And yet, all this imagery taken up in the motifs of the tabernacle and the temple, it evokes that same promise that was couched within the judgment leveled against Adam and Eve. They were to be judged. Their punishment would be severe. They would be cast out. While they are being sent east out of God's presence, God would go with them. God would follow and pursue them. Even as he did when extracting the confession from their lips in the garden, they would be banished, but they would not be sent out alone. They would no longer live with God, but God would not leave them. The promise regarding the offspring of the woman and the serpent still ring in the air between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It was at this moment in history as Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden that the waiting began. Waiting that lasted for generations, thousands of years. As we'll see when we get into chapter 4, Lord willing, in two weeks, generations of faithful believers would hope and seek for the Messiah, the promised seed, even in their day. That's contained even within the names of Cain and Abel. Maybe these. I am reminded how every one of our generation since Christ, from the disciples until now, have been convinced that Christ would return in their day. Many of us look at things going on in the world and go, maybe Jesus is coming back again soon. And I think that is by God's design. I know that's by God's design. God would have us live as though Jesus could return at any moment. In each generation, the promise made by God as well as successive promises made through the likes of Abraham would give rise to the hope that one day God's people would be rescued. They would be reconciled. They would be welcomed back into his presence. The way again would be open for them to return to the west, to return to the garden, to return to God's presence. It's appropriate that we're getting into the swing of the Christmas season and that we have the Christmas program next week because it wasn't until the life of Christ, God the Son made flesh, that this waiting that started at the driving out in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't until Christ came that that waiting finally found its resolution, its answer. 
that promised seed had finally come. Fortunately, by this time, many had given up waiting, given up watching. They'd become too enamored with other things to notice. In John 1, we can read, starting in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They had waited thousands of years from Adam till Christ, and yet his own people did not receive him. For many, the waiting continued and continues to this day within modern-day Judaism, waiting that God would send a Messiah. Waiting to be returned to the presence of God. This is the fulfillment of this is found in Jesus Christ. The sin of Adam, whereby one man allowed sin into the world, was rectified in Christ, whereby one man's righteousness leads to justification and life for all who would call upon him. Thinking of the coming of Christ, thinking of the expulsion of Adam and my own sin, of all of our sin, is the reason why on the back of every one of my business cards you have Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Going on from that passage, Paul goes on to say, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, brothers and sisters, God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. But even then, towards these sinful and faithless creations of God. God had already promised a redemption, a reconciliation that would even come from the seed of the woman. And he had already set about initiating that reconciliation through their confessions in the garden. He called them to confession so that when they go forward, they might be reconciled. And it is in Christ that that reconciliation of God and man, long predicted, long awaited, came to fruition. I've always loved the hymn turned Christmas carol written by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. As we close today, I want to remind you of the first and last sentences of this beautiful song. These words are written of our Lord Jesus Christ and they beautifully sum up the resolution and the hope to the troubled estate of Adam's race after their expulsion from the garden. They have been driven out. But there is a hope there. There's, they're waiting. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners 
reconciled. The very last sentence of this song, mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Mankind's relationship just because Jesus has come and been incarnated on the earth and he had lived that perfect life and died the sinner's death and he was raised again, that doesn't mean that all the earth is saved. We must believe. We must follow him. Our relationship with God, even if we have believed, is still stained with sin. For those in Christ, even those from before Christ who were faithful to God of the universe, all of that waiting and that curse and that separation that we have known our entire lives finds its fulfillment and resolution in Christ. Fully God and fully man, born to right what was wrong, right what had been done, not for the eternal punishment of the world, but that God would call out of the world for himself a faithful remnant, that he would call out of the world for himself a people who would believe in him and be saved. Jesus Christ born to succeed where the first Adam had failed. Adam was driven out of the garden for his sin. The second Adam redeemed mankind by doing exactly what the first Adam should have done. When he was tempted, he denied that temptation. He followed the commands of God. He followed everything, every law, every commandment. He was perfect before God in righteousness. He was the one and only righteous man. And if we are in Christ, then that righteousness becomes our righteousness and our wickedness becomes the wickedness that he suffers for. He takes in himself the punishment of the entire race that would follow God's people. And this is not a race of skin color or nationality. This is not a race of creed or where you're from. This is a race that finds its nationality, its hope, its homeland, not here on this earth, but in heaven, with God, from God, because of God, because he has called us to confess our sins. He has called us to confess Christ. He has called us that we might know him and we might glorify him. And we who have trusted in Christ look forward not to an eternity separated from God and not even to death, but an eternity united with him in the new heavens and the new earth. As Tim read earlier, in that new Jerusalem, we're no longer barred from the tree of life we have what's called the right to the tree of life. A right that is only ours in Christ Jesus. If we have confessed Christ, then we are exiles no more. 
but instead we become part of the eternal family of God. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge that we are all sinners. We all deserve to be driven out of your presence and eternally barred from your presence. We all deserve the eternal punishment worthy of our sins against you. But Lord, by your grace, through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the faith that you have awakened in us, that you have given us, we have a better hope. We have a better future. Eternal life as it was meant to be. Eternal life once again walking with God that you would be our God and we would be your people and you might walk among us. That that which we trust by faith today we might know by sight in your presence, O Lord. Lord, I pray for us that we might be motivated by that hope, that we might declare that hope and that future, that we might bring that hope to all who would listen, particularly as we get into the Christmas season, O Lord. May we use this opportunity to declare that God has come to be with man, to reconcile man to himself, O God. May we be in awe of what you have done that you would pursue and follow and reconcile such wicked sinners as us. And that you would do so at the expense of the life of your Son, Jesus Christ. That he would have to leave his place in heaven and that he would have to come to earth, O God, is beyond our ability to fathom. But even more than that, that he would live and then die. God, let us not for one moment minimize our sin. May we see our sin for what it is, that it is death to us. That our only hope of life is found in Jesus. May we hope in no one and nothing else. May we not hope in our own works. May we not hope in our own righteousness. May we not hope in any other thing except for the one way, one truth, and one life, your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, take us forth from this place that we might glorify you, that we might bear your image into all creation, and we might declare the reason for that image, that reason for all things to anyone who would listen. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.